I've been thinking about information. I've been thinking about information for years. Uh, way back when I was a graduate student in Oxford, I first encountered information theory and wrote a little bit about it in my dissertation and uh, realized there was a huge gap between information in the everyday folk sense and information in the Shannon Weaver sense, which I explored briefly in that book and just left it dangling and didn't know what to do with it. Uh, but it's been sort of haunting me over the years and uh, more recently I've returned to the subject and uh, seen if I could take advantage of some of the other uh, changes of perspective I've had over 50 years and sure enough uh, I think now with the help of a few other people I've got a pretty good pretty good bead on information in both senses and how they fit together that is sometimes called semantic information, information that's about particular things, and then Shannon Weaver information, which is just a measure. Uh, Shannon Weaver, it's not just a measure, but it's often quite ex acceptably considered to be, it's like a bucket, a bucket of what? Well, it's a bucket of information. And how many quarts, how many pints, how many bits? But the bits can be about anything. And now the question is, how does the Shannon Weaver sense of information uh, ground or fit with the understanding of information we talk about when we talk about disinformation or being misinformed or being a very well-informed person? And how does this all fit with uh, the philosopher's favorite topics of belief and knowledge and so forth? And there's a tradition in philosophy which says, well, let's look at the root case, which is Tom believes that P for some proposition P. Tom believes that uh, Larson pitched the only perfect game in World Series history, to take a threadbare example. So here we have a case of a person, Tom, who has a belief, and the belief is captured, presumably, by this proposition it's a sentence of English in this case, but one is to understand that that sentence of English is just standing in for something more abstract, roughly the same way that a numeral, Roman or Arabic, stands in for a number. The number is abstract, the numeral is, is a symbol. Uh, so the English sentence is, a, is an expression of a proposition. And so philosophers have been very eager to get a good theory of propositions. And I played with that stuff for years, played, worked, struggled with that stuff for years, and grew more and more dissatisfied with it. And uh, wrote a piece, oh my gosh, uh, 25, 30 years ago, called Beyond Belief, which was my attempt to put that tradition pretty much to bed. Uh, and to my satisfaction, I did. Uh, I go back to that literature, the so-called Propositional Attitude Task Force, uh, so named by the participants uh, somewhat jocularly. And here it is, uh, that was 1980-something I wrote that. And here it is all these years later, and they're playing the same games, puzzling over the same examples, and they're just as far from a uh, uh, solution as ever, as far as I can tell. So I'm not sorry that I turned my back on that, but I, I still hadn't answered the questions that I wanted answered.
So having turned my back on propositions, I thought, what am I going to do about this? Mm-hmm. Well, the area where it really comes up is when you start looking at the contents of consciousness, which is my number one topic. And uh, I like to uh, quote Maynard Keynes on this. He was once asked, do you think in words or pictures? And he said, I think in thoughts. Wonderful answer, but also wonderfully uninformative. What the hell is a thought then? Mm -hmm. How does it carry information? Is it like a picture? Is it iconic in some way? Does it Mm -hmm. resemble what it's about? Mm -hmm. Or is it like a word which refers to what it's about without resembling it? And so forth. And are there third, fourth, fifth alternatives? And looking at information in the brain and then trying to trace it back to information in the genes, which must be responsible for providing the design of the brain that can then carry information in other senses, you gradually begin to realize that all this does tie in with Shannon Weaver information theory. There's a way of seeing information as a difference that makes a difference, to quote Donald Mackay and, uh, and Bateson earlier, or Mackay, I think maybe was first. Uh, and so ever since then, I've been trying to articulate, with the help of David Haig, evolutionary biologist at Harvard, just what meaning is, what content is, in, ultimately in terms of biological information and that in terms of physical information, the information of Shannon and Weaver. And uh, there's a chapter in my latest book called What is Information, which is now, I stand by it, but it's under revision. I'm already uh, moving beyond it and realizing there's a, there's a better way of tackling some of these issues. Uh, but the key insight, I think, is that we simply have to get away, and I've known this for years, I haven't just seen the, all the implications of it. We have to get away from the idea of there being the pure, ultimate, fixed proposition which, in, which captures the information in any informational state. This, this goal of capturing the proposition this attempt at idealization that philosophers have poured their hearts and soul into for a hundred years, it's just wrong. Don't even try. So now I'm coming around to think, well, why did that have such a hold on us? And I think that it's really quite obvious once you start thinking this way. We, and only we, among all the creatures on the planet develop language. And language is very special when it comes to being an information handling medium because it permits us to talk about things that aren't present, to talk about things that don't exist, to put together all manner of concepts and ideas in ways that are only very, very, very indirectly anchored in our biological experience in the world. It's, compare it for instance with uh, a vervet monkey alarm call. The vervet sees an eagle and 
issues the eagle alarm call, and we can understand that as a signal, an alarm signal, and we can see the relationship of the seen eagle and the behavior on the part of the monkey and the behavior of the, on the part of the audience of that monkey's uh, alarm call. That's a sort of nice root case. Now suppose we start asking, well, what exactly does that monkey call mean? Does it mean low, look out, there's an eagle, it's up there? Or does it mean just jump into the trees? Or does it mean just, oh, help, help, help? How would we put that alarm call into English? Don't try. This is the trick. Don't imagine that the way to have a theory of meaning and interpretation is to treat it as a theory which has as its goal the reduction of everything to some canonical sort of proposition. Now that's a very powerful idea, which is, I think, just a big mistake. It, it's powerful because, for instance, it allows you to say things like this. Uh, we can have a sentence in French, le chat est noir, a sentence in English, the cat is black, a sentence in German, the cat is schwarz, and they all mean the same thing. There is one and only one proposition which is expressed differently in different languages. And so you, this, is, this is a way of giving us a signpost to this object, the proposition. Uh, so propositions are supposed to be idealizations rather like numbers or vectors or some other uh, uh, abstract formulation. And it looks at first very powerful and for some purposes it's very useful. But it takes you away from enlightenment, I think, because it gives you this false sense that you haven't understood something, really, until you've figured out how to articulate, how to point to, how to identify the proposition that a particular meaningful event has. No. There's all kinds of meaningful events that, that defy putting in terms of any particular proposition that doesn't make them not meaningful. You have to turn the whole thing upside down. This is what I call David Haig's strange inversion. And start with the simplest imaginable case, like a bacterium that responds to a gradient in its environment, and that response has a meaning. Well, what does it mean? Well, in a way, don't ask. It has meaning because the response, in one way or another, is relevant to the well-being of that bacterium. If it's, if, if it's responding to food by moving towards it, that's, that's its meaning. And it's not more precise than that. And we have to get away from the idea that that's a merely figurative or metaphorical case of meaning. It's as real as meaning ever gets. And then we start then with dead simple cases of meaning, the meanings of the actions of bacteria and the like. We can get even simpler than that and talk about the meanings of the, of the, of the uh, uh, 
structures of proteins, we can get we can get very simple and treat those as our atoms, those as our basic units. And then we see human meaning in books and uh, newspapers and on television, meaning that's linguistically bound as very important and a very, very, very special case, which has many properties that other kinds of meaning don't have, but not as the foundational case, but rather as the exotic cases of meaning, the cases that create theoretical illusions of various sorts, such as the hunt for the phantom propositions. Now you tell some philosophers, well, I'm very interested in meaning and interpretation. I don't think propositions are going to play much of a role in it. Many philosophers would say, well, then you've got to be wrong. Uh, they're so wedded to that perspective, which they learned in all of their classes. And uh, I was myself wedded to it to a significant degree. Now I'm moving away from that. And it's paying off not just in thinking about information in biology and information in uh, what I call the intentional stance, which obviously ties in very nicely with that, but very specifically with how to talk about the content of states of consciousness or other states of the brain, which are not all pictures. <laughs> Almost none of them are pictures and they aren't all words. Many of them are, but that's not where their meaning resides. And so we are freed up to think about how neural states and transitions can have meaning, quite elaborate meaning, without it being expressible in any sentence. Now, I've been, I've been hinting at this in various ways for years. A number of years ago, oh, more than a decade ago, I had an example of somebody saying, uh, uh, Joe has a thing about redheads. Well, what did I mean by a thing about redheads? Well, it was a thing. It was a thing in his brain. And it was about redheads. In what sense? Well, whenever redheads were the topic, this thing became active and it biased his cognition, his emotional state. He just had a thing about redheads. Okay, so now I have this thing. It's not a proposition. If you ask, what exactly, what is the proposition that it expresses or stores in memory? Don't ask. There's no, there's no proposition. What's true of it is it's this thing, physical thing, which has the curious property of being relevant to redheads in that it becomes active whenever the topic is redheads. Whether redheads are seen or talked about or remembered or imagined, this thing becomes active. Now, that's an example, a very crude example, of a neural something or other which has meaning in the mind of a particular individual but defies translation into any propositional format, and none the worse for it. The, the philosopher's fascination with propositions was mirrored in 
good old-fashioned AI, the AI of John McCarthy and uh, Early Minsky and Newell and Simon and Shaw. And it was the idea that the way to make an intelligent agent was from the top down. What you do is you, you have a set of propositions in some uh, proprietary formulation. It's not going to be English, but it's going to be, well, maybe Lisp, something like that, where you define all the predicates, you define all the uh, 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 operators, and then you have this huge database, which is beautifully articulated and broken up into atoms of meaning, which have the meaning they have by being part of the system they're part of. You stipulate their meanings, and then you have a resolution theorem prover that sits on top of that. And this is how we're going to generate a, a, a thoughtful, creative mind. It was a very attractive dream to many people. And it's not quite dead yet. And this early attempt in AI, which went through into the, well into the 80s, uh, gave us many wonderful things. And I think that it's important to recognize how much that we now take for granted in AI and in computers grew out of the explorations of the good old-fashioned AI pioneers. Uh, but it hit a brick wall. <clears throat> Uh, McCarthy and Hayes discovered the frame problem. Uh, there were other intractable issues. And then along came connectionism, and then more recently has come reinforcement learning and deep learning. And people have moved away from this ideal of a canonical expression of specific propositions as in an axiom system. Uh, I, I've used the term good old-fashioned AI or GoFi, which was coined by my late dear friend uh, John Hoagland in his book uh, uh, Artificial Intelligence, The Very Idea. And he was an early and influential and knowledgeable critic of the field. Uh, he deserved the right to come up with the amusing name good old-fashioned AI when it was still going and when it was still regarded as as very promising by many people, and he was already foreseeing its demise uh, correctly in many regards. But the fact is that the fruits of good old-fashioned AI are all around us. In fact, uh, uh, the internet is largely based on good old-fashioned AI. When, when people talk today about semantic search as opposed to string search, they're talking about going beyond what you can do with the methods of good old-fashioned AI, which is string search till the, till the cows come home, and going deeper and getting at the semantic meanings of what's out there. But of course, those are the semantic meanings that the philosophers were trying to capture with their notion of propositions. And if, if that's just a fool's errand, as I now think, then one has to acknowledge that semantic search, the semantic web, can never be anything more than 
a useful approximation and that we should be very keen to recognize that and recognize that we're not going to get uh, canonical, clear, provable semantics out of most of what's on there. You can get some because some some areas of inquiry, some data sets are wonderfully well articulated and organized and are just built for that kind of exploration. But most of the web isn't and that's the way it's going to continue. That's where deep learning, etc., comes in because, and especially Bayesian nets and so forth, because these are tools for finding by amazing sort of neo-Darwinian methods, extracting meaningful patterns from all of this diverse material. And the beautiful thing about it is they extract meaningful pattern without knowing what the meaning is. And that takes us back, interestingly enough, to Shannon and bits and differences that make a difference. Even when you can't say what difference they make, you can say they make a difference. So what deep learning is now doing is coming up with competences which were sort of unimaginable just a few years ago because they don't depend on GoFi type comprehension. They don't depend on being able to deduce from axioms that this has to be the meaning of this or this has to be the meaning of that. They're not deductive at all. If you go to Google uh, and search for something, they will search for exactly the sequence of letters you put in, unless uh, now it's getting better if you think it's better in that it will try to guess what you really want to ask about and if they think if it thinks you've misspelled something it will try an alternative spelling a lot of people object to that because they want to do research which depends on actual string search uh, but the technique that Google the techniques that Google and others are developing for going beyond the string and trying to suss out the intended meaning of the search this is new territory and we should view it with some real caution and and be careful that we know when it's being used and when it isn't because it may very well misinterpret what you want and you'll never know unless you can somehow peel back behind the screen and see what what's actually actually going on well those methods are the methods that are intended to make the web more semantic in that you can look things up by meaning, not just by strict name, not by just the symbols in the string. Um, so these are, these are related. These, all of these issues are, uh, are related. Um, the nice phrase, the difference that makes a difference. Uh, obviously there's differences everywhere. This grain of sand is here, not there. This grain of sand is a little different shape than that one and so forth. And some differences, however, have roles to play in larger 
circumstances, and it may be the butterfly that flaps its wings that causes the hurricane, so forth and so on. If we want to have a general term for differences that make a difference, uh, then those are the that's the information really in the in the Shannon Weaver sense, um, in that it can give rise to a correlation, which can then make a further difference and further differences and further differences. Um, I've talked about inert historical facts. Those are differences that don't make a difference. My stock example is this. Some of the gold in my teeth once belonged to Julius Caesar, or none of the gold in my teeth ever belong to Julius Caesar, not a single atom. Now one of those is true. I don't know. I doubt if that's a difference that makes a difference. I doubt if that information exists in the world today. It could. It could. I mean, we actually can prove that some things belong to some people that have been dead for centuries. We have a, 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 an informational chain. But uh, it's a way of thinking about information which is sort of maximally simple and uh, shorn of many of its usual uh, connotations of codes and signals and uh, uh, languages uh, and the like. <laughs>